First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. You have your Bibles, and I hope you do. Would you turn with me to the Old Testament book of Nehemiah? And as you are turning there, again, today is such a big day in the life of our church, the start of of greater things. And there are a couple of different scriptural inspirations for that name, greater things. One of them is from the Gospel of John, the verse that we read together earlier in our service, John 14, 12. It's a verse that uh, is printed on these uh, blue uh, wristbands that uh, each of you will receive uh, today uh, before you go. And uh, it's a verse that uh, Jesus spoke these words the night before he went to the cross. And listen to these amazing words. Jesus said, Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. Now what in the world could Jesus have meant when he said that? Surely none of us are going to do more miraculous things things than the things that Jesus did. Most likely we're not going to be walking on the water anytime soon or turning water into wine or physically raising the dead back to life. That can't be what Jesus meant when he said that we would do greater things than he did. I think the clue is found at the end of that verse when Jesus says, because I'm going to the Father. Remember, the very next day after he said these words, he died on the cross for us. And three days later, he rose up from the grave. That is what Jesus did on his way back to the Father. He completed the work of redemption that he came to do for all who would be saved. And so now we who live on this side of the cross... If you think about it, we get to do something that Jesus was not able to do during his earthly ministry. We get to point people to the finished, completed work of Jesus Christ upon the cross. Essentially, the greater things that Jesus is talking about is sharing the good news. It's pointing people to the cross and pointing people to the empty tomb, pointing people to Jesus, the only name by which anyone can be saved. And so 40 days after that, when Jesus ascended to the Father, and he gave us the words of the Great Commission, he told us to go and make disciples of all nations. Essentially, Jesus was sending us out to do greater things, greater things here and greater things around the world. And what a privileged church that we get to be a small part of that. And that is what Greater Things is really about. Even though Greater Things includes buildings and budgets, it isn't ultimately about buildings and budgets. It's ultimately about the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. It's about sharing Him with those who have not met Him yet. Here's what I hope that we will take in this morning more than anything else. God has called us to do greater things here and everywhere to make disciples for the glory of our God. And as we talk about these greater things today and over the course of the next couple of months, we're going to walk together through portions of this great book of Nehemiah. 
Because in the book of Nehemiah as well, God gave his people a great work to do, the work of rebuilding the wall that was broken down around the city of Jerusalem. And you know, even though you find Nehemiah about halfway through your uh, copy of the Old Testament, the events that are recorded in the book of Nehemiah actually occur very late in Old Testament history. This book talks about some of the very last things, very last events that we read about before those 400 years of silence, before the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This book talks about events that happen after the judgment that God promised to send to his people if they would not turn back to him. This book talks about events that happen after the 70 years of captivity in Babylon. Now a new world leader is on the stage, the Persian Empire. And by this time, two waves of Israelites had already returned to the promised land and to Israel. But there were some, like Nehemiah, who were still living on foreign soil. Nehemiah was a cupbearer for the Persian king Artaxerxes, and the story begins with Nehemiah receiving some troubling news from the city of Jerusalem. Let's read the first few verses, Nehemiah 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. It came to pass in the month of Shislev in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down, and its gates are burned with fire. And so it was when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven." We'll be digging into more of the meat of this book of Nehemiah in the weeks to come. But today, I just want to share a few basic principles from these first two chapters of Nehemiah as we kick off this series. Because again, we believe that God has called us to do greater things. Greater things than we've ever seen him do before here in Melbourne. That's what we're asking our God to do. But as we look at this story of Nehemiah, what we find is that God is looking for a people that he can do great things through. And there are certain characteristics that were true of Nehemiah and true of the people in Nehemiah's day that we need to make sure are true of us as well if we truly are asking the Lord to do great things in and through us. First off, what we see in the book of Nehemiah is that God does greater things through those who share God's burdens. The book opens in the winter of 445 B.C. Nehemiah is serving the king in the winter palace of Shushan, also known as Susa, which incidentally is the same Persian city where the story of Esther takes place. And in verse 2, a visitor comes. We find out that it is one of Nehemiah's brothers. A man named Hanani. And he comes, and right away you can see in Nehemiah's <clears throat> heart of concern for God's people and for the city of Jerusalem. Because as soon as his brother gets there in verse 2, Nehemiah begins to ask him about Jerusalem, about his countrymen, and how they were faring. And Hanani's answer is not encouraging. In verse 3, he says, The survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Its gates are burned 
with fire. Now, it's hard for us, I think, to hear that and understand how significant, how important the walls and the gates of an ancient city were. But this was really their only means of defense, a city that had a broken down wall. A city that had its gates burned to smithereens was wide open to attack. The people were vulnerable. The newly rebuilt temple was also vulnerable to attack. They had no protection whatsoever. But of course, Nehemiah could have heard that report and been entirely indifferent. He could have said, well, I'm in a very influential person, uh, in a very influential role, Uh, second to this most important commander in all the world, this King Artaxerxes. I'm his trusted cupbearer, his trusted confidant. Uh, Here I am. I'm wearing very nice clothes. I'm eating very nice food. I have very nice accommodations. And so things are going well for me. And so he could have heard about uh, the state of his countrymen in Jerusalem, and he could have just gone on and done nothing about it, but he didn't. The news greatly affected Nehemiah, and in verse 4, we read this. He said, when I heard these words, I sat down and I wept, and I mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And everything else that we're going to read about in this book, about how God used Nehemiah to do this great work, all of it starts right here with a man with a broken heart for the things that break the heart of God. God's agenda was Nehemiah's agenda. What was on God's heart is what was on Nehemiah's heart. Nehemiah saw the need and he was broken over it. In church, if we're going to be used to do greater things, then we have to be deeply burdened about the spiritual need that we see all around us. Greater things has to start in the same place for us. And the needs are great. They are great here and everywhere. Even in our own country, the needs are so great that other countries are beginning to send missionaries to the United States because of the pervasive lostness that is found in our country. The latest statistics say that 269 million people in America do not have a relationship with Jesus. That's a startling number. And many of these are found in the major cities of the U.S. where the number of churches is not keeping pace with the population growth. In fact, this is a statistic for Southern Baptist churches. I assure you the numbers are no greater for other denominations either. But on this next slide, you'll see that 100 years ago, there was one church for every 430 people. But today, there is one church for every 6,828 people. In other words, churches are 15 times more rare than they were 100 years ago. And our passion to do greater things, to plant churches in these cities, has to start with being broken over that spiritual need that we see. And the need right here in Melbourne is also so great. Perhaps you've seen this number before, but if you were to put your pencil down right here where we are on Derry Road and go out 10 miles from here and and draw a 10-mile circle around where we are sitting right now, there are 282,000 people living within 10 miles of our church. 
And because three out of four Floridians are lost, what that means is that there are more than 200,000 people within 10 miles of this place who do not know the Jesus that you and I know. And that number is growing by the day. Church, greater things has to start there. It has to start where it started for Nehemiah, with being broken over the lostness that is around us. We cannot hear those numbers and be content with the status quo and be content to do nothing about it. We can't say, well, at least we're happy here and at least things are going well for us. I pray that that will never be our response. I pray that like Nehemiah, what is on the heart of God, namely the lostness of those who are around us, will be on our heart. And I pray that God's agenda would be our agenda. I pray that we would be broken over the spiritual need that is around us. And that that spiritual need would drive us to the second thing that that must be true of those that God uses to do greater things. They embrace God's call to action. The first action that Nehemiah takes is the most important one of all. He prays. He fasts and he prays for really about four months before he finally speaks to the king. And next week, we're going to look at this beautiful prayer that he prays in chapter 1 of Nehemiah. Next week, we're going to take the whole morning and devote it to prayer and submitting all of this to the Lord and asking him to lead us. And in chapter 2, after Nehemiah prays, he takes a bold step that could have cost him his life. And he tells the king that he wants to go back to Jerusalem personally and rebuild the wall around the city. And then he goes even further than that. He asks the king for letters of authority that would grant him the authority to make that trip. He even asks for letters to give him authority to the lumber in the king's forest that he could use on that project. And amazingly, because God is behind this effort, because God is the hero of this story, the king grants him everything that he asks and more. The king even even sends Nehemiah with a retinue of cavalry and soldiers to guard him and accompany him upon his journey there. And we find out in verse 10 of chapter 2 that not everyone is happy about Nehemiah coming to help the city of Jerusalem. There are enemies that oppose his work. But after this long journey, which would have taken him two months or more, Nehemiah arrives in the capital city of Jerusalem and he takes a midnight ride that you can read about in verses 11 through 16 where he rides in the nighttime around the walls of the city and he inspects the damages and he comes up with his plan. He first makes his plan in private and then he shares it in public. In verses 17 and 18, he shares his dream of rebuilding the wall with the people. These are some of the key verses in this entire book. Look at what it says, verse 17. I said to them, you see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste, how its gates are burned with fire. Come and let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them of the hand of my God, which had been good upon me, and also of the king's words that he had spoken to me. And so they said, let us rise up and build. And then they set their hands to this good work. Now certainly the people could have said, who is this guy? Right? Who does he think he is riding in here with his cavalry and telling us that we're going to rebuild this wall that has been knocked down for 150 years? We cannot do this. He's crazy. 
But that's not what the people said. That's not how they responded. In the end, they responded to Nehemiah's call and ultimately to God's call to action. Notice verse 18 says, they said, not Nehemiah said, they said, let us rise up and build. And then they set their hands to this good work. You know, I believe that we've walked through a very similar process to the one that we read about here. In light of the great need around us, your pastors have been praying and seeking God for many years leading up to this day. As you heard earlier, for two years now, a building committee from our church has been working and praying and seeking God's face for the future, asking him for wisdom, asking him what he would have us do. And we believe that he has led us step by step to the plans that we are sharing with you today. But it's going to take all of us It's going to take all of us responding to God's call to action. It's going to take all of us responding like the people of Nehemiah's day did and saying, by God's grace, let us rise up together and do what God has called us to do. Earlier, we talked about the spiritual need that is everywhere in our country, but it's one thing to identify a need, and it's another thing to be a part of the solution. But we believe that God has called us to greater things everywhere to make disciples. (coughs) Specifically, we believe God has led us to be a part of doing something that healthy churches have been doing since the book of Acts and something that our own church has a great legacy of doing, and that's starting new churches here and everywhere, especially in the major cities of the United States and even if God leads us in other nations as well. The goal that he has given us is to plant one church per year starting in the year 2021. Now that's a big goal. That is a God-sized dream, but I am so encouraged already by what I see God doing, how I see God preparing us for that goal and the realization of that goal. You know, back in July, uh, I preached a message on church planning. Maybe some of you were here that day. That evening, we had an interest meeting for our church planning pipeline. Uh, I I was thinking that maybe five people would come. I would have been thrilled if 10 people had come as, as this is just getting started. But I walked into that room, and did you know that 60 people came that night in the middle of the summer to hear about being a part of church planting? And what's even more exciting than that, 30 of those people have filled out applications and are this week beginning to meet in groups for the next year to get prepared to be sent out. These are people that want to be sent out as lead church planners or as other elders on a church planning team or even as core team members that just say, I don't feel called to be a pastor, but I just want to go. I just want to be used. How can I be a part of what God is doing? And the reason why I'm sharing all of this is that the funding of this goal of planning one church per year starting in 2021, uh, we want this to be a part of our Greater Things initiative. My prayer is that through Greater Things, the next five to ten years of these church plants could be funded, and I'll share more about how that will work in just a minute. So God has called us to greater things everywhere, but we also believe that God has called us to greater things here 
to make disciples for his glory. God has put us and our families here, and he wants us to be a light to those 200,000 people within 10 miles of here who don't know Christ. He wants to use our church, but in order to do that, in order to reach some of those folks for Christ, I think that we all know that we need to expand our facility here. And we could put up some graphs and charts and things like that to, to talk about that, but I'm not sure that's really necessary. If you've been here and you've been coming, you know already that we're out of room in our parking lot. You know already that we have no more room to start new small groups at our peak hours and on our peak days. And you also know that within the next year or year and a half at our current rate of growth, we'll be out of room even in worship space at our peak hour, even though we just went to three services just last year. Now, this is a great problem to have, and we praise God that we have that problem. But the answer cannot be to do nothing. The answer cannot be to not make room for the people that God has been sending us. And that is why your pastors believe that it was in God's sovereignty that he gave us the acres of land that he gave us here 20 years ago because he knew that not in our timing, but in his timing, there was going to come a day when we would need them. And we believe that that time is now. And again, it's going to take all of us responding to God's call to action. I want to share a few specific ways you can embrace God's call to action over the next eight weeks. First of all, to pray. Again, there's no more important thing that we can do than that. To pray individually, pray as families, pray as a church family, seek God's face. Secondly, just to be engaged. Be engaged with what God is doing here. And you can do that, first of all, by just coming, by being here the next eight Sundays and being a part of this, this journey. These are critical weeks in the life of our church. You can be engaged by being a part of, of a vision dessert gathering. Again, we're inviting every person in our church to come to someone's home over the next month for an intimate time of sharing vision and talking about our church family uh, pray for me, because I'm going to be at all like 15 of these and having desserts every night. I'm probably going to be a diabetic by the time this is over, all right? So y'all pray for me. But when you get that invitation, I encourage you to sign up for that. I'm, it's going to be such a special time uh, over the course of the next month as we meet together. Also be engaged by leading your family through that family devotion time. Maybe you've never done that before, and maybe God could use this time a greater thing to build a new habit into the life of your family a meeting together and praying and studying his word together, asking God what he would have you do. But then church, also one of the ways that I'm gonna ask you to be engaged that I believe God is calling us to be engaged is to sacrificially give, to sacrificially give. And in fact, I'm gonna ask you on October 14th, as God leads you, and if God leads you to do this, to bring on that day the single largest offering you've ever brought to any campaign like this in your life. And I'm going to ask you also to pray about what God would have you do over the course of the next three years, a three-year commitment to be a part of this effort. I can assure you, Megan and I, we're going to be walking through the same process with our family. Asking God, what, what do you want us to sacrifice? What do you want us to give up? What do you want us to defer? What do you want us to not do? How can we give the offering that you're calling us as a family to give during these days? And if we're faithful to do that, if we're just faithful, each of us, to just be obedient to God, that's all God ever asks of us. God just wants, in every part of our life, right, to ask him what he wants us to do and then just to be obedient to that. 
And if we're faithful to do that, I believe God's going to provide. Because one thing I've learned is if the Lord wants something to happen, it happens. His arm is not short. And that's why through this time, I believe the Lord wants to teach us the third characteristic of those that he does great things through. He wants us to depend entirely upon his grace. One of the themes that shows up over and over in the book of Nehemiah is this phrase, God's good hand upon me. You see it in chapter 2 in verse 8 when Nehemiah talks about why the king gave him those letters that he gave him. He said it was because of God's good hand that was upon me. In verse 18, when he's telling the people about this vision and this dream, he tells them about God's good hand that has been upon him. What is he speaking about? What he's speaking about his confidence that his confidence was not in his plan, that his confidence was not in his ingenuity, that his confidence wasn't in anything about him at all, that his confidence was in the grace of God, that God's good hand had been upon him. He depended entirely upon God, and church, that's where God always wants us to be. God never wants us as a church to get to a place where we actually think that we can do God's work without God. And I think sometimes that's why God gives us projects that are so big that there is no way we could possibly dream that we could do this without Him. You know, in terms of the cost of this project, we're still working with uh, the architect and we don't have the final uh, numbers yet to share with you, but I do have a range of cost to share with you here this morning. And you know, it's, it's interesting. Over the course of the past few months, I've been asking folks, you know, what do you think that a, that a project of this size is going to, to cost. And, and the answers have been all over the map. There, there's been some who say, well, I, I think it's only going to cost uh, one or two million to do that. And I wish that that were the case. And then there are some who say, well, project of that size, I think it's going to be 20 to 30 million to accomplish that. And I thank the Lord that that's not the case. But, but the range that, that we are seeing right now for the facility expansion is somewhere between 12 and 14 million for this part of the project. And, of course, that number could go up or down depending on, one, greater things and what God does through greater things. And also, as we continue to work on the final design concept to share with you uh, at the head of next year. Uh, this number is an all-in number. It doesn't just include the bricks and the mortar, but you can kind of see a little bit of the breakdown there uh, on the screen. This includes, includes funds for site work that would be necessary for parking uh, this includes some funds for renovation, for design fees and permitting fees and some contingency as well. And then because we also believe, as I shared earlier, that God wants us to be faithful to our mission statement, to make disciples not only here, but to make disciples everywhere. Uh, we wanted our goal of planning one church a year to be a part of this Greater Things initiative. And so as you look on the right side of that slide, you'll see under the word everywhere, that we're proposing is that using the tithing principle for every dollar that is given to greater things, that 10 cents of that would be placed in a church planning pipeline fund. And I am so excited about that because depending on the generosity of God's people, that means, again, that the next five to 10 years of this church planning vision could be supported through greater things. I know that for most of you, this is probably the first time that you are seeing the size of this project. And your reaction is probably like my reaction was the first time I saw. And that's the thing. Ah, how are we going to do this? Right? This is such a big task. This is such a big uh, project. And, and, you know, part of me wants to tell you that we can do this. 
You know, that really isn't true. And as this date of September 9th has been getting closer and closer, the Lord has been reminding me that we can't do this. That this is a God-sized task. And when we use that language, when we talk about something being a God-sized task, it means that it's a God-sized task. It means that it's something that only God can do. But church, isn't that what we want? Don't we want to be a part of something that only God can do? Because you know what? If only God can do it, then only God will get the glory for it. Greater things to make disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. And that's the final characteristic of those God uses to do greater things. They're committed to giving God all the glory. As we will see, that's what Nehemiah did every step of this great task God gave him. He gave God all the glory. I believe that's one of the reasons God used Nehemiah the way that he used him. And church, let's be committed from the very first day of greater things that we will follow Nehemiah's example, that we will give God all the glory for whatever he does in and through this place. You know, this greater things goal may scare us, be honest, it scares me a little bit, but it does not scare our God because he is able. As Paul wrote to the Ephesians, now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be the glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. The truth is, these buildings that we're in right now, whatever buildings that are built as a result of greater things, one day they're all going to be destroyed. Because buildings don't last forever. But the glory of God does. And the praise of redeemed people who have been covered by the blood of Jesus will go on and on forever and ever. And church, that is what greater things is all about. Would you stand with me? Father God, we thank you that you are great, that you are greatly to be praised, and that you want to do greater things for your glory. We ask that you would work in our hearts during these months, that you would draw us to yourself, that, Father, we would be a people through whom you could work in incredible ways. Lord, we love you. We praise you today at the start of this journey. We pray that you would receive all the glory at this journey's end. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Church, let's declare as we sing this song that we do believe the words of these, this song, that we do believe that God does want to do greater things. And even as we sing this, as we make this declaration, let's make this our prayer that he would do greater things here and everywhere for his glory. 